All right, let me pray for you, and uh, we'll jump into Luke chapter 1 this morning. By the way, thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity that we have together here in uh, the Young Adult Gathering as a part of our Cross Church family. Uh, Father, we pray that what we look at today, you would use by your Holy Spirit's power to press into our hearts, that we would walk away today with a clear word from you. God, give us your, give us your Holy Spirit's power to help us to see what you want us to see, ears to hear what you want us to hear, a mind to understand what you want us to understand, and a heart to receive it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so I want to, we've kind of broken up Luke chapter 1, so we're off our reading plan just a smidge, but I wanted to kind of break it up because last week or two weeks ago before the the Sunday before Father's Day, I wanted to just spend our time kind of looking at the first four verses um, discussing the, the certainty of our faith, and we looked at all kinds of different implications for that, both referenced here by the author Luke. Dr. Luke, and also just the other more historical, modern sort of examples of manuscripts and just proofs and evidence and things like that. And today what I want to do is kind of roll through Luke 5 through maybe 25 or so um, and, uh, and kind of look at these opening stories here um, given to us by Luke. Now, um, so we're already, this seems crazy to me, but we're already virtually halfway through the summer. Like June is gone. Raise your hand if you've already taken your vacation. Some of you guys have. I've seen pictures online in this, kind of looking at the beach and like, oh, I wish I was there. Uh, how many of you are doing it in July? Like it's TBD coming up still. Okay, fantastic. Um, anybody want to take a, take a pastor along your trip for good blessings and favor? Um, depending on where you're going, I could probably help you find somebody. Um, so what? So Team Plunkett is keeping it local this summer for, for vacation. Last year we took a big family vacation away, and this year we're staying local. Maybe next year we'll do something out, out of the area. Uh, and so one of the things that we did this year, we've done it in the past, is buy passes to the um, Rogers uh, Aquatic Center right here down the road. Um, and my kids really enjoy that. I enjoy hanging out and playing with them, watching them. And uh, one of the things that the kids like to do, and I enjoy it as well, is the Lazy River. Anybody? Anywhere there's a Lazy River, I'm like, Chris's River. And so we're floating around on the Lazy River. And uh, it's funny that every time we get into the Lazy River, and, they, and the kids really enjoy going um, to the Lazy River as well. It's three and a half feet of water, right? So it's like right here. So it's like you need to understand that. And so when Harper gets in, Harper more than Eli, when Harper is getting in her little raft thing, um, about 125 times as we go around the river, she'll ask me, Daddy, do you, do you have me? Daddy, do you have me? And, uh, and, and I, again, it's three feet of water moving at zero knots. Like, it's virtually not moving. It's new, moving just enough so that what you're floating on will eventually move in the right direction. But she's always worried about um, being separated from our little crew because it's one person per raft, and so we're all sort of there together. And uh, more than Eli, Eli's not so much worried about it. He can sort of maneuver himself around. But Harper's always, always, always asking, Daddy, do you have me? And for her, um, what she means by that is, are your hands on my raft, right? And it's not good enough. Again, it's three and a half feet of water, so I'm sort of like walking along at a leisurely pace. And I'll have my hand sort of haphazardly on the raft or, or maybe even underneath the raft as we kind of guide like this. 
But inevitably, that's not good enough. She's asking me, Daddy, do you have me? Because she doesn't just want to, to know that my hand is on the raft. She wants to see my hand on the raft. She wants to experience my touch, right? She wants to hold my hand as we go around the lazy river because she doesn't want to be separated from us. And it's hand or feet, depending on which direction she wants to, to go. And I was thinking about that scenario while I was studying this text. And I think that is a near perfect, in my opinion, I'm the one who gave it, so I, would, I could say that. A near perfect illustration for what we see happening in Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 25 in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the truth is the same thing for you and I. When you and I find ourselves in different circumstances in our lives, whether it would be something slow like a lazy river or something more intense than that, we find ourselves in situations where we wonder, God, are you there? God, do you have a hold of our raft, right? And we'd want more. We have a tendency to want more. I do. We want more than this sort of head knowledge that, yeah, okay, God's got a hold of the raft. We want more than that, don't we? We want to see his fingerprints on the raft. We want to have him touch our hand. We want an experience to be reassured that he has a hold of our raft. Everybody tracking with me? And so what we're introduced to here in Luke is a married couple who I believe are in this scenario and they're asking themselves, they have to be, if you can imagine the circumstance they find themselves in, they have to be wondering, God, do you have a hold of our raft? So let's look at this text together um, and jump in. Look at Luke chapter 1. I want to just read verses 5 through 7 initially. It goes like this. In the days of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. But, here it is, here's the scenario, the context. But, verse 7, but they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were well along in years. Now, I always try to explain or to convince you or to invite you when you read a text like this in any, really, any passage in the scripture, you want to maneuver your heart in the direction of the people who are in the text on the page. You want to feel the text. You want to experience what's going on here instead of just a cursory reading of the particular story. And so you've got to imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth, they, they want to have children and they can't. Now, for those of us in here who have children, like we know it's not always perfect, it's not always easy, but it is a blessing. It is an immense blessing. The scripture teaches us that way. Now, there may be seasons in our week, day, month, or year where we don't particularly find it to be a blessing personally. But nonetheless, over the long haul, it is a blessing. And, and perhaps, so you can imagine the, the wound or the hole that sort of exists in their heart because they want this for themselves, but they can't have it for some reason. Maybe that's been your story. Maybe. Maybe for those of you in here who maybe you're in a season where you're, you're, you would like to have kids, but you can't. 
Or you know people who are like that. You know people who, who've really wanted to have kids, and, and for whatever reason, they just can't have children. You know that it is a deep wound. It's, it's a heart, heart issue. It's a challenge. If you think about this too, culturally, for Zachariah and Elizabeth, they live in a culture in the first century, in the early centuries of the, of the, of the Bible, that was a deeply family-oriented culture. Like Jewish families were, were pretty large. They had multiple siblings. And, uh, and so it was, a, it was a sign of God's promise and God's, God's blessing to the nation of Israel that they would be fulfilling Abraham's covenant, yes, and would be multiplying, growing. But more than that, for Zechariah and Elizabeth and others, those who had children, your, your children were essentially your long-term health care plan, your retirement plan. Mine still are for in these days. I call Eli my 401k and Harper my 403b. That's who they are, right? They are my future retirement plan. I have some concerns with the market, but nonetheless, they are my hope. <laughs> but for Zechariah and Elizabeth, like this was their long-term plan was, was children, not, not just to be a means of retirement and care, but that was a part of the culture. And so for them, it's not just a pain issue, a broken heart issue. It's a, like, an economic issue. Like, we don't know what's going to happen here. And i got to think, when you want to feel the text a little bit, I'm wondering how many times, being, being the Jews that they were, righteous and godly, walking with Jesus, Zechariah, a priest even, how many times they had read through the Old Testament and come across the verses that says, train up a child in the way he would go, teach this to your children day and night wherever they go. Or, or Psalms, in the Psalms where it says that the children are a blessing from God and that blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. How many times had Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah teaching the text, Elizabeth hanging on to it, listening and believing and praying, memorizing the text, and then wondered, why not them? Why not them? And I know we've been in scenarios like that in our life too, where, where we, we feel like we're struggling with something, we're missing out on something, we're in a trial, we're going through some stuff, and it's easy to look around at other people and, and even the promises of God and wonder, why not us? I think about this in verse 7 here, it, it tells us a pretty interesting insight into their scenario. Not only are they just incapable of having children, but here too in verse 7 it says that both of them are well along in age. So they're not 30-year-olds or even 40-year-olds or maybe even 50-year-olds, yikes, who can't have kids. Like, they have gone through decades of not being able to have kids, and now they're moving into a season, if they're not already there, where it's becoming physically, if not already, for sure now, almost physically impossible to have children in their older age. This is a picture. Listen carefully. You've got to keep reminding yourself through the text that these people were believers in God, which teaches us that even believers in God will go through seasons, maybe even long ones, of suffering and trial. Walking with God isn't easy. Walking with God doesn't guarantee a smooth path. But notice here throughout the text, Zechariah and Elizabeth are constantly referred to as believers, as faithful, as those who walk with God. They haven't bailed out on him in spite of their trial. They remain faithful even in this discomfort, even in this grief, even in this pain. So this is a trial. This is a picture of long suffering. You think about how many times 
they had gone through the emotional cycle of the ups and downs, of the hopes and despairs. Every time Elizabeth is nauseous, they're thinking, is this the thing? Is this the day? Is this it? Only when time passed, they either maybe had a miscarriage, painful experience, or it was just an illness. So these ups and downs, like this, so this is a heavy grief. I, I think, just not to beat a dead horse here, but I kept thinking too about, I wonder how many times Elizabeth had been invited to a baby shower. How many times Elizabeth had been invited to participate in the celebratory moment of someone else's story that she has not achieved or had in her own? How many fake smiles she had had to try to wear in these? Because everybody in here knows that when you are sort of sucking wind in a particular area and someone else is being blessed in that same area, it can be a gut punch. Right? It is almost impossible sometimes in our heart to celebrate with someone else the very thing that we want for ourselves. Not that we're against them having it. Sometimes we are, but we just don't have it ourselves. So imagine the fake smiles and pleasantries. Think about this. How many people asked her outright, dude, like, Elizabeth, what's the situation here? Zachariah, how come you can't have any kids, man? You're not man enough? Right? I mean, think about how much of that they had dealt with or how many assumed whispers they heard. And we know this was a heavy burden because later on in the text, spoiler alert, they actually end up having a child. Right? If, you haven't, if you're not familiar with the story, they actually have this miraculous child. But look down at verse 25. Look down at verse 25. Luke chapter 1, verse 25. When she gives birth to this miracle child, look at what she says. She says, thank you, Lord. Look what she says in 25. Who took you... You took away my disgrace among the people. So Elizabeth, so that gives you some insight into what Elizabeth had been dealing with. People had been looking down on her, had been criticizing her. How come you can't get your life on track? How come you don't have this thing? How come you're not progressing like other people? How come you haven't had children? How come, how come, how come? And she began to feel the disgrace, maybe even began to think she deserved it for some reason. And she thanks God that that was removed when she finally had a child. Now, I just think about all the times in my life where for me in my trial, and maybe even for you in your trial, whatever the scenario might have been, we begin to wonder, especially the longer the circumstances are, the longer the trials are, we begin to ask ourselves some questions. God, where are you? Yes? God, why is your hand? Is it not on my wrath? Because... I know it kind of says it should be because of what the word says, but God, I don't, I don't feel your hands in mine. I don't feel that you have a hold of any part of me or any part of my wrath. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors um, to quote from, it's such a great, great insight on the text and things. He wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And I, I believe the, the premise of the book is predominantly, but not exclusively, but predominantly about, it's about suffering, yes. But mostly in this moment where he lost his wife, she passed away. He's just grief-stricken and broken. And he says this in Grief Observed, that he cried out to God in these difficult moments, in difficult moments. And this is what his experience was from God. He said, I got a door slammed in my face. And a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. 
After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence becomes. You may have been there before. You've been in your situation, in your trial, and you're thinking, God, where, where are you? See, here's the, here's the thing we've got to understand. And it's easier to teach this, and it's easier to hear this when you're not in a trial, I know, than to teach and or hear it when you are in one. But nonetheless, it's true. When sometimes God seems to be silent in our trials and pain, and, and the reality is that the longer things go, the less we can wrap our minds around our circumstances, and the more we wonder why, where, how. Where is God? Look at what happens next. Look at Luke. Look at verse 8. It says, when his division was on duty, this is Zechariah, and he was serving as a priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by Lot, which is not the dude from the Old Testament, according to the custom of the priesthood, or, I'm sorry, to, rather, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 30. They'd go in and throw incense on the altar. Here's what would happen really quickly. They'd go into the altar, to the temple, not in the Holy of Holies, but just outside that. they throw incense on the altar. they prostrate on the ground, pray, and then back away and out. It's an in and out sort of a deal. doesn't take very long. You'll notice later in verse 21, this happened. This is Zacharias in this situation and serving at this level for so long. In verse 21, if you look at it, Right, what does it say? It says, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. So like, Zechariah, this is supposed to be in that kind of a job, man. Like, what's the deal? What happens? And we'll see what happens in a minute. Look at verse 10. At the hour of incense, so the time this would happen, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, Zechariah, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Look at verse 12. When Zechariah saw him, so Zechariah, listen, get the picture. Zechariah is in here by himself putting incense on the altar and to, he's going to pray and then leave. So in the middle of this service, bam, what happens? An angel shows up and in verse 19, if you read down, we know that it's Gabriel. That's what we learned that it was Gabriel. So if you read that in, in advance, you know this is Gabriel. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He's going to be set apart as holy. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. This is a unique child. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the, of the power of Elijah. This is the prophecy. To turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous. To make ready for the Lord a prepared people. 
So Zechariah, listen, Zechariah is a priest. He's been this 60-year maybe time frame of having no kids. He's grief-stricken. He's got a hole in this wound he's kind of carrying with him. He's remaining faithful to his call, faithful to his God, but carrying a deep wound with him. He's given what we would call a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There may have been, some commentators will say, that there may have been as many as 18,000 priests serving Israel at this particular time. And because of so many people, they would generally have probably only served his crew, his team, would have maybe only served about two weeks out of the whole year outside of the major festivals that Israel had celebrated. And so he's on duty at this particular time, 60 years into his broken story, it would seem. He's given a once-in-a-lifetime, he rolled a hard six, if you will, and he's the one who gets the chance to go in and do this thing, the incense on the altar. And in this experience, he has a a life-changing, catalytic moment. He experiences an angel, the, the word and presence of an angel Again, Gabriel, according to verse 19. I think it's interesting here, too, to consider briefly, we're not going to go into detail here, that this is a terrifying experience to come in contact with an angel who is not just an angel, but Gabriel, who we learn about later on, who stood and stands and serves at the feet and face of God. This happens throughout the Old Testament. You read the scriptures, anytime an angel shows up, people, don't, people are not like, Hey, what's up, bro? Like they hit the ground in fear because of the holiness of these creatures. There's no chubby baby in a diaper with a bow or a harp floating around. People talk about, I had an experience with an angel in the parking lot. Help me find a perfect spot at the super center. I'm thinking, I don't think so, bro. They're terrifying. But look at what Gabriel's news is. Verse 13. Your prayer... Zechariah has been answered. Now look at me. Feeling the text in the story yourself, Zechariah is thinking 60 years. My question is, how long ago do you suspect, in spite of his faithfulness to God in service and his following him, how long ago do you think Zechariah gave up praying that prayer. Because, and we can read that into the text a little bit because in verse 18, later on in the text, the response that Zechariah gives Gabriel is, How can I know this? And it's not eager anticipation, it's doubt. It's like, Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? How? How? But nonetheless, Gabriel gives him this news and says, here's what's going to happen. The prayer that you prayed, whether it had been recent or a long time ago, is going to be answered. And the prayer is going to be, it's going to supersede whatever it was that you requested specifically. You think about how his expectations change over time. Like when we're first, when you're first a, a dad or becoming one or you're waiting to get pregnancy, you're thinking, man, this is going to, he's going to be great. He's going to be this and that and, and all these kinds of things. And, and then the, the longer it goes by before, and there's no baby, there's no baby. I think at some point Zechariah's just thinking, even if he's really not that smart, I would still take him. Thank you, Jesus. Even if he's not very fast, not very tall, even if he looks like me and not his mom, like, we'll take anything now. 
And so when Gabriel comes and says, hey, you're answered, your prayers are answered, I just wonder what was going th- through his mind. And we know a little bit by looking at verse 18. But Gabriel goes on to say that your son will lead this nation to revival in spite of what you asked for. I'm, it's going to be a superseding answer. He's going to lead his people in revival. He's going to usher in the ministry of the promised Messiah. Oh, and by the way, not just for your joy, but for the joy of all peoples. The greatest man to ever walk the earth, according to Jesus. Born of man. Look at verse 18. Again, Zechariah's response is, I, I can't believe this. This is not a, the, the spirit of the text here is not like Christmas morning like, I can't believe this. I got what I wanted. How did you know? This is perfect. That's not the heartbeat of this particular verse. This particular verse is a, are you freaking kidding me? This, that's the Greek translation. Are you freaking kidding me? This is a wounded response. And, 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 and we can imagine this because he's, let's say he's in his 60s or 70s. He's well along in age. <clears throat> he must have looked at himself and thought, <clears throat> you're kidding. You're kidding. We know later on he essentially looks at his wife and says, you're kidding. I'm 60 years old. Where have you been all these years? How about that, Gabriel? Where were you when I was 20 years old, Gabriel? Where were you at when I was in my 30s, Gabriel? Where were you at when I was in my 40s, Gabriel? Really what he's saying here isn't Gabriel. He's saying, God, where were you when this was supposed to make sense? I have to imagine for just a moment that in Zechariah's ear, he began to hear the song from Alanis Morissette, Ironic. Yes? I remember where I was when I first heard that song, shooting hoops outside my neighbor, my house in Greenwood, Arkansas. Look at me now. <laughs> it's, been, it's, it's a green light when you're already late. It's winning the lottery, and dying the next day. Everybody's playing along with me, like, I don't remember this song. Verse 18, Zechariah is thinking this out. He says, for I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. He's assessing the situation. I'm well past my prime. The door has closed. My wife, she's well along in years. I feel like maybe he thought she was in earshot. He's like, she's not, she's not old, but she's well along in years. And that's not really a, it's not really a joke for him to say this. What he's, this is actually a pretty emphatic thing. He's saying she's not just old, but she's like way beyond that time. Way beyond that time. You see, Zach, here's the thing that we got to learn and understand. See, Zechariah's known, assessed reality had superseded his faith to such a degree that he could no longer see how God could ever provide him with a different one. John Calvin, the great theologian, says this of Zechariah's response in verse 18. He says, Zechariah responds, as if he had forgotten his own 
prayers of faith. But isn't this true that the longer we wait for something, the less likely we are to look for it? But the reality before Zechariah that he is assessing of his life story had become this, this challenge, this gaping hole with no more anticipation, but now a certainty spoken out of his mouth, in his heart and mind, it had become so big that he could no longer see around it. It was his future. It was his lot. Aren't you and I exactly like Zechariah more often than not? The biggest, I think the biggest struggle and challenge that you and I have, if you're a believer in Christ are believing in the promises of God in spite of the reality of your circumstances. I think about verses like Romans 8.28. Listen to this. Romans 8.28 says, We know, Paul writing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And we read that in our trials of various kinds, and we are Zechariah. We begin to think all things, all things for good, loss for good, waiting for good, suffering for good, heartache for good, uncertainty for good, closed doors for good in my marriage in my family in my finances with my career or in my health or perhaps God is calling you to to take a step of faith into a new direction and you're thinking maybe when I was in my 20s Gabriel but I'm well past that time let me listen carefully here the the message behind this story in Luke chapter 1 is this. Will you, will we trust God no matter what? Will we trust God no matter what? Will you trust, listen carefully, will you trust that his hand is on your raft even when you struggle to see it and certainly don't feel it? When you're pleading with God seems to fall on deaf ears, will you trust God? Really quickly, I want to show you something really intriguing to me in the text. Look at verse 20. This is Gabriel's announcement here. He says, listen, or his response to the doubt of Zechariah in verse 20. He says, now listen, these things will be fulfilled in their proper time. The word will, this emphatic word used I think nine times in his little speech to Zechariah. It will happen. But I want you to pay close attention to the two words at the very end, toward the end there. It says proper time. The Greek word for time here is the word kairos. It means the right time, the perfect time. It means timing. It does not mean your time or my time. It's God's time, the proper time. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, for whatever reason, it wasn't their time when they were in their 20s. It wasn't their time when they were in their 30s. It wasn't their time when they were in their 40s. It was their time this time. 
Look down at verse 57. In verse 57, Gabriel says this, and he's talking about, the, or Luke is talking about the situation. They've had the, the babies coming. Here it is. In verse 57, it says this. Now, Luke says, now the time, this is a different Greek word. This is chronos, where we get our marked time, chronological time, time measurable in space on a certain day at a certain time. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. So here's the takeaway. God's time shows up at the right time in real time on his time, not your time. And it could be inconceivable to us that God's timing would be whatever it ends up being because his ways are higher than our ways. And in the meantime, what we have to lean back on are promises like Romans 8, 28, that in the meantime, the waiting time, the long time, the, do, the, court, the closed doors time, those all are for our good for some reason somehow. We don't have to like them, long for them, or desire them, but we can see in the middle of those trials that God somehow means those for our good. So here's the promise. Here's the thought you need to kind of hang on to. <clears throat> A closed womb... A desolate marriage, an empty bank account, a seemingly dead-end career, or I want to get out of this one and into a new one, but there are no opportunities. None of those types of things are obstacles for God. None of them. What God wants to do in your life in the middle of these hard trials is he wants you to turn to him, to trust in him, to depend on him. To take him at his word. Look at verse 20. In the meantime, Zechariah is disciplined for his doubt. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a, oh my gosh, how's this going to work out situation. He says, that, no, this can't happen. You're insane, Gabriel. And what, look at what happens. He is given what I would consider the ultimate go to the corner. You go and think about what you did. I've never sent Eli to his space, wherever that was, and then followed up later and asked him, are you thinking about what you did? He's like, what did I do? Why am I even here? I forgot. We used to have a chair in our living room called a naughty chair. When our kids were really young, and when they were out of control, we had to sit in a naughty chair. They loathed that chair. Right up into the moment we got rid of it, Eli was like, let's set it on fire. Zechariah is disciplined here for his doubt. He has a momentary lapse because he's a faithful follower of God before and after this moment. He has a momentary lag in his faith. But what he is given is a nine-month opportunity to watch God fulfill his promise. Nine months of faith building. And we know that to be true because in verse 64, look down at it. It says this, that immediately his mouth was opened when the baby arrived and his tongue was set free. And the first thing he was able to do was praise God. His faith had gone to another level. Now I want to I close with this. This is interesting to me that woven into chapter 1 is also the fantastic, amazing story of another, young, another woman, a much much younger woman who's given some ridiculously amazing, mind-blowing news from the same angel. And this one is Gabriel speaking to Mary, who would be the virgin mother of our Savior. 
But it's interesting to me, and I think Luke is trying to teach us something by a compare and contrast situation here. Mary is receiving this mind-boggling news. And look at her response in chapter 1, verse 34. Look at what Mary says. Mary says, how can this be? Since I have not had sexual relations with a man. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like Luke 1, 18? And Zachariah's response to his news to Gabriel is, how can I know this? How can this be? How can I know this to be true? So my question here is, why is Mary not disciplined for her how can statement? But Zechariah was. Do you see that? Why? And I think the answer it has to be, and we know this from the scriptures, that God looks on the inside. God knows our heart. He knows where our heart is. And I have to believe, we have to see in Mary's heart was this, that in her heart there was a deep faith in God behind her confusion about this news. Like she didn't understand how this could happen. How is this going to happen? I'm, I'm a virgin. I'm, I'm to be married, but we haven't slept together yet. So how is this supposed to work? But in spite of her confusion, in spite of her assessment of the particulars, she has faith that somehow God will do what he says he'll do. <clears throat> I read this, this this week in terms of like sort of an illustration for this. The pastor, another pastor I was reading about said this. He says, you know, he says you can know nothing about flying an airplane and still get in one. You don't have to know anything about flying or physics or anything related to flying but you can step into the plane and it will take you the same place had you been sitting by somebody who knew everything about flying. And I have to believe, I, I believe that that's the situation here. Hopefully it paints a picture for you between Zachariah and Mary. Mary is like, listen, I don't know how any of this is going to work. I don't know the particulars about how to fly, lift and drag and physics. And but Mary said, I'll get on and I'll just sit here and I will be faithful and I'll let this plane take me where you said it's going to take me. And Zechariah took a look at that plane, took a step back and said, there ain't no way this is supposed to fly in the air. This ain't supposed to work. I ain't getting on this. This is crazy. So my question this morning for you and I is this, how about you? There's no way I, th for me to know what every one of y'all are walking through. Good, bad, and ugly, I don't know. But where do you fall in the scenario? Do you have a deep-seated faith in God to take him at his word, to trust him in spite of your circumstances that you deem to be solidified in some way to believe that God could still be God in your story like he has been in Zachariah's and Mary's? You see, doubt does one of two things. Doubt, doubt t helps us take a step forward in spite of what we don't know, or it will lead us to take a step away from God. So how about you? When you can't see a way forward, will you trust God? When you don't feel his hand on your raft, will you trust that it's there? Let me close with this. The, the point of this story 
is not that God will give you what you want in due time. The point of this story is this, that will you trust God for whatever he does have for you now and then? And that what he, is, what he has for you is for your good. I want to close with this one last thing. I want to give you something to walk out of here with. Like, what do I do? Okay, we get all this. I need to trust God more. I, I want to take him at his word. And, and, and I want my faith to supersede my circumstances instead of my circumstances superseding my faith. And so, Chris, what do we do? How do we move forward? Because it's dark. It's hard. It's difficult. There's a lot of uncertainty. I don't know what to do. Here it is. I'm going to give you two things that you can do to grow in your faith. Are you ready? I can tell you're eager because your pens are out and your papers are turned over. Okay, here we go. I'll go slow so that you can be ready. Here's the ultimate principle that we learn from this text. God is calling you and me to greater faith in him. And so how do we do that? Two things. Number one, pray for it. Pray for it. Look at, you don't have to go there. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says this. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. What Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying in Ephesians is, listen, the faith that you exercised to, to be saved was a faith given to you as a gift from God. Dead men don't make decisions. If you read the context there, you need a work of God to then exercise the faith in God. And so the, the, the leaning here, the learning here, is to have greater faith, to recognize a gap in your faith. I need more faith. God, I need you to give me faith to make it through this scenario is then to pray for it. And be honest with God. He knows if you're doubting. He knows if you're wavering already. Be honest with him and open up to him and ask for greater faith. You need to look at this text later, Mark 9, 24. I can't go into it now, but it is amazing. It's such a good story. God comes to Jesus and says, Jesus... I need you to heal my son. He is sick. He's demon-possessed. He keeps throwing himself in the fire. The demon does. He's tried to kill him multiple times. I need you to, can you do this? Can you do this? And Jesus says, can I do this? I can do this. Do you have faith? And the dad, in pain and brokenness with his child, says, yes, I believe you can do it, but help me in my unbelief. So he's demonstrating for us on the pages of Scripture that there is a season and a place you can be in your heart to say, yes, I believe, but I'm still doubting. I need you to help me, God. And God will do it. God will give you greater faith. Pray for it. Ask him for it. Number two, cultivate it. Pray for it and cultivate it. Romans 10, 17 says this. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So you cultivate faith in your life by digging into, listening to, reading, and meditating on the scriptures who tell you what the promises of God are and they speak louder in your ears than the circumstances before your eyes. The Bible is, think about this, the Bible is a thousand testimonies to God's faithfulness, a resume giving us reason to trust him with anything and everything. If we'll read it and we'll commit to memory and we'll hang on to it. What about Zechariah? What if he had, by the spirits and by the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, opened up to Genesis chapter 17 and read the exact same scenario he was in that was happening in the life of Abraham? Yes? 
a testimony on the pages of Scripture, very similar to his circumstances, almost to in every single degree. Abraham was too old. Abraham was way too old. Abraham was way, way too old. And it happened for him because God said he would do it. It doesn't make the problem trials easier, but it gives our heart something to hang on to. I want to close with this. Charles Spurgeon, famous quote, he says this. He says, when you can't see the hand of God, you can absolutely trust his heart. And so if you're here this morning and you're listening to this and you're in a, you're in a season of something, you can trust that God's hand is on your raft if you've given your heart and life to him. He will be with you and he will fulfill his promises to you because he is a faithful God. You can trust him. Pray for greater, pray for greater faith and cultivate it by spending time in God's word. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio message from the Young Adult Gathering at Cross Church Pinnacle Hills Campus. For more information about Cross Church, please visit us online at www.crosschurch.com.